you would please turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Samuel. Today we will be beginning the next to last chapter in 1 Samuel, chapter 30. 1 Samuel, chapter 30. Most of the time it's almost impossible to jump into the middle of an engrossing historical story without knowing much or remembering much about what's been happening to that point. And yes, this is a holiday weekend, and we know there's many who are here that are not usually here, and we're glad to see you this morning. And we need to ask this question, what can we say to bring everyone up to speed so that our passage today, which is 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 through 8, will deliver the impact that the author intends it to. Well, let's start by reminding ourselves that understanding and being deeply affected by this story is not just up to us. The Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of the Bible, attends the word he's created and inspired and applies it to hearts that many times are surprised by its power and clarity and by its penetrating nature. The historical books of the Bible are not bare-bone records of past events. Instead, we need to see what they really are, and that is they are theologically and pastorally shaped narratives. And so are written with remarkable skill, employing careful construction for the sake of the suspense we see there and the meaning, which most of the time illustrate truth taught elsewhere. This particular Old Testament book, 1 Samuel, has had most of us on the edge of our seats for 48 weeks now. At least that's how I feel. God's dealings with his people way back then have sped through almost 4,000 years of history and geography and cultural differences to become a powerful lens by which we've discovered the foolishness and waywardness of our own hearts. But at the same time that we've been humbled with this deeper understanding of our own issues and our own real needs, we've also been literally overwhelmed by the grace and power of our Creator as He has consistently displayed His faithfulness and provision to carry out His promise of a future Messiah through the line of this anointed but not yet reigning king, David, that this book has introduced us to. And so here we come today to the next to the last chapter in 1 Samuel, having just seen David last week in the text, delivered by the Lord from the incredible mess that he had gotten himself into, and couldn't get himself out of. Sixteen months ago, David had fled for his life 
from the insanely jealous King Saul of Israel to seek refuge with the Philistine king of Gath named Achish. And this was a desperate act, not of faith. To fit in among these pagans, David adopted a life of deceit as he secretly raided Israel's other enemies, the Amalekites among them, in the vast southern wilderness desert regions of the Negev, which is south of where Israel is today. David would bring Achish some of the spoil and tell Achish that he was attacking Israelite cities. This cleverness came to a screeching halt when all the Philistine cities mustered their forces and combined together for a huge war with Israel. Achish, king of Gath, demanded that David and his 600 men go with him. This would force David to either openly become a traitor forever to his own people, Israel, or to turn against the Philistines' army in the battle itself, a terrifying and deadly prospect. So just when David seemed impossibly trapped in this scenario, God delivered him by a very surprising set of circumstances, by means of the suspicious Philistine lords who objected who objected to King Achish bringing in this contingent of Hebrews with them to fight other Hebrews. Actually, that was pretty wise on their part. Chapter 29 concluded with David and his men being sent home to the city that Achish had given given them to live in, away from the upcoming Philistine war, and back to this city. The city's name was Ziklag. We will get to know it well today. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 30, the first eight verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 through 8. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord 
his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? The Lord answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It was a three-day, 60-mile march about for David and his 600 men back to Ziklag from where all the Philistine kings had gathered their armies in a town called Aphek. We can imagine the relief and the expectation of seeing their families again far away from this war. On the last 20-mile day, the relief and the joyous expectation were completely and utterly shattered. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned down. Their wives and sons and daughters had been kidnapped. Verse 3. We already know from verses 1 and 2 that the Amalekites are the ones that had raided and attacked and burned and kidnapped, but had killed no one. What does that mean? In other words, there were no bodies in Ziklag. In the ancient world, that would mean only one thing, that their loved ones were going to be sold into some kind of slavery. The Amalekites were the ancient nomadic people descended from Esau, who were perennial enemies of Israel. Saul had failed to utterly destroy them in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And David had been raiding them, but now they had taken advantage of David's absence to retaliate against him and the Philistines. In verse 4, we read that David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. Let that sink in for a second. This is a sobering and even disturbing picture for God's people, is it not? Aren't there times when we think it just can't get any worse? And I don't know about you, but there are many in this room and many people you know who are in this situation right now. And you've probably said it yourself or heard someone say it who is close to you. It can't get any worse. It just can't. And here in verse, in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, we see that, yes, it can get worse. We think something has to be the last straw. And then comes Ziklag. The Bible tells us the truth. There is no false advertising 
in Scripture. There's no bait and switch in Scripture. Christians may be overwhelmed with troubles. And you may think that you've received more than you can handle. But God is the one telling us this fact in his word. And I hope you notice that. He is telling us that, yes, it can get overwhelming. You can trust a God who tells you this. You can depend on Scripture that tells you this. When Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He didn't put this information in small print and hide it at the bottom of the page as a footnote. We may like to ignore these passages. We may want to ignore these passages. We don't want to hear messages or sermons about these passages. But it's the truth. And God tells us the truth about the world that we live in. Jesus also immediately said after those words, But take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, Jesus himself overcame through suffering. And unless we want to ignore scripture, he did call his followers to follow him. That's what it means. And that means that sometimes we will suffer. David's family was gone too, as we learn in verses 5. And the first part of verse 6 tells us that he was greatly distressed. And the Hebrew cannot say that any stronger. Plus, we find out that his men had had enough and were about ready to rebel against him and stone him to death. To say that David has hit rock bottom is an understatement. They all, all of these guys, 600 rock-hard men who had already been hiding from Saul and his forces in the wilderness with David for a long time now. They were at that place beyond the last straw. It's right here in the middle of verse 6 that everything changes. And you need to ask yourself as we go through this, isn't that how God works sometimes? We have to admit, we haven't been attentive. We haven't been worshipful. Our knees have not been bowed like they should have. And sometimes it's not our fault either. Sometimes the circumstances of the world we live in bring these situations. They're just there. But something incredible changes right here in this passage that we desperately need to know and own. 
we find out that God's strength is sufficient for whatever the result may be. For the first time since he had been in Philistine territory, we read that David inquired of the Lord. Do you find that hard to believe? The first time that we read this since David ran off to the Philistines to find refuge from Saul, he inquired of the Lord there in the first part of verse 8. In verse 6, we read these incredible words. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And we need to ask, and we need to understand, what does that mean? And the first thing we need to do is let's get straight what it does not mean. Strengthening yourself in the Lord, finding strength in the Lord does not mean performing some kind of ritual that supposedly would supply divine aid or something else. It doesn't mean resorting to some kind of gospel magic, promising a quick fix. Because many times the fixes aren't quick, are they? And it doesn't mean letting go emotionally from some, by some form of venting, which is really popular these days, by not holding all, all the emotion in. So you go the opposite way. You vent it all. And this is not to say that crying out to God is a frivolous exercise. It is important. And some of us may need to learn how to cry out to God. But that in itself, crying out to the Lord is not all there is to strengthening yourself in the Lord. It may be an introduction, but it is not strengthening yourself in the Lord. Unless it gets everything else out of the way so that you can finally focus on the only one who has any kind of answers at all. David and his men had just voiced their grief so loudly and so long that they had no more strength to weep. But they picked up stones ready to kill the future king. Crying out is what God wants us to do but watch out that you don't all of a sudden think that your anger has somehow lifted yourself to a plane of righteousness and enabled you to get ugly about it and demanding about it. You are crying out to the Lord God Almighty. Remember that. Second, we, let's get straight what it does mean. We must begin where David began. And as usual, there's a lot of sneaky things in the text of the scripture. And a lot of times we go right by them. David began with his personal God. 
But David found strength in the Lord. What's the next two words? His God. Now this highlights something really important. And the important difference here that we need to note is between declaring that the Lord is the shepherd of Israel, which he is, and being able to say that the Lord is my shepherd, which David writes all over the place, especially we are fond of Psalm 23. In other words, some church folks might affirm that Jesus is the Son of God and not have any argument with that at all. They may say it often, but can they truthfully call him the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? Notice that David, in discovering the burned and the utter ruined city of Ziklag, could not even say, my house, it was burned. My city, it was gone. My possessions, they're gone. My family, where are they? But he could say, my God. Mind you, if anybody else in the Old Testament has a whole book named after him. The people of God have always known these truths. We learn them whether we want to or not. Sometimes true. Strengthening must begin with your personal God, whom you have met and grown to know. You must know him, not just know about him. You must know him. You must have met him. You must have believed in him. Knowing about him won't get you there. Satan knows more about him than anybody in this room. And he is condemned to hell because that's all he does. How then do you find strength in the Lord, your personal God? Isn't this what we really want to know? You know, there's... There are things implied here in this text and from David's experience. And there's also some explicit actions that he takes. What is implied here reminds us of very similar language that we've already seen back in chapter 23. There, David had just been utterly convinced that Saul was trying to kill him when another spear came in his direction. And he had taken off. And Saul's son, Jonathan, at great risk for himself, found David in the wilderness hiding. And he, it's, we read in chapter 23, 16, that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Jonathan, the son of the king who was trying to kill David. 
Now what we learned then was what we need to recall and remember always and always take to heart. Jonathan helped David do what? Remember and reaffirm the promises that God had already made to him. Jonathan reminded David of God's promise to David that he would be king of Israel. And we all say, I wish God gave me some really specific promises like that about this situation that has come up, about this health condition, about this, peop- this person I love, using their name, telling me these promises. Right? David had these promises specifically to him, and he still forgot them. And as we remember God's promises and how faithful and good he's been to us throughout our lives, our highs and our hearts are strengthened because, why? Because we grow in our understanding of who God is and how great and mighty and merciful and faithful and creative and sovereign and loving he really is. Because in the midst of these times, that's the last thing that we usually go to. We're too ticked. We're too hurt. We are so much in pain that we can't even get that into our head. And yet that's exactly what needs to be there. Putting all these truths together about who God is and what he's done strengthens us when nothing else can. Now let me ask you a a question. If you're saying, yeah, I know that, but that never works, then you've never really cried out to him and gone to him. Why? Because we want something more tangible. We want to be able to put a stake in the backyard and say, yeah, this is it. He promises, I demand that you do this for me. What if that's not what God's will is for you? How many Christian soldiers have cried out in wars throughout history? And we're not that long later in the ground. God does not always answer like that. His ways are beyond us. So we have to look at who he is and trust him with things that we cannot understand. But we know who he is enough to know that he does have a plan and he knows what's going on and he will bring all things together for his glory and work all things out for our good. And sometimes that means good we need to suffer to learn these truths about him it's counterintuitive in some ways but in other ways it's so much right here that we miss it how i don't know it's right here i do it you do it we all do it God has obviously not promised any of us an earthly kingship. You may have grand plans for yourself, but this is not one of them that's promised by the Lord God. But passages like 
Nahum 1.7 are everywhere, especially in the Psalms. And a, a verse like this and a passage like this point to who our hope is found in. Simple. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows or cares for those who take refuge in Him. You know why He tells us this? Because that's enough to know. And we argue with that. So remember, call to mind, reaffirm the characteristics of your God and what he has done in the past and promises for now and in the future. And folks, the sad truth about this is that if you don't do this in times when things are going good, quote unquote, then you won't have the habit of doing it when things get tough. I'm sorry, but this is the lesson of getting to be a geezer. It takes years to learn this unless God really works in your heart as a young-er Christian, and I hope that's the truth. There are also some explicit actions that David takes here in the next two verses, in verses 7 and 8. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Now here, most of the men in this place, and I bet all the women too, this is, fine. This is something you can do. We're glad to see this. Finally, he gets to do something because the God has given him, God has given him direction. David uses his access to God's presence, the God that he has met, the God that he knows. And there should be no question as to the strong connection that we see in this text between the last part of verse 6 and then verses 7 and 8. They go together. We have here... We see David recovering himself and then seeking guidance through Abiathar the priest and the use of the sacred lots that were kept in this ephod, this garment, vest. Nobody's really sure exactly what it looked like or how it fit. But it was God's way of giving direction in a yes-no format um, in the Old Testament, especially to his kings through always a priest. Abiathar the priest wore this garment when asked to come and this was his sacred duty and he came. And we may immediately raise this. Well, we don't have an ephod or a resident priest anymore. Sometimes when we have questions like this, I really would like to ask you to raise your hands if that's what you were thinking because... Usually it's a whole bunch of us. 
But in reality, do we have a priest? A priest far greater than Abiathar? Jesus Christ? Those of you who went through Hebrews week after week after week with the whole book centered on it's important it's so important that it's a major major foundation stone of our faith let's pick one place in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 If you highlight in your Bible, this should be highlighted. It should be highlighted in your heart. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. It's confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There it is. We may not get specific or precise answers like we want to in our questions, you can ask for that. You can cry out for that. But you don't always get answers to your questions. You know what questions I'm talking about, right? Why me? Why them? Why now? But what does this verse say? Are we so bent out of shape because we're not getting the answers that we are demanding to our questions that we miss this? This verse says very clearly that we will find grace to help. Which we usually need way more than answers as some crisis such as Ziklag comes to us. Ziklag now has a whole new space in my brain. It's my word that covers everything that happens that we think we utterly never want to happen, but that have happened after we thought it had already been the worst. Ziklag. We can talk to each other this way. In other words, there's many of you who have gone through or are going through right now your own ziklag. And that immediately conveys to me, okay, 
They feel like they're beyond the last straw. This is more than they can take. They're overwhelmed. We need to go confidently to the Lord's throne of grace and believe his truth that we will find grace to help. But get this. We usually need help way more than answers to the crisis as Ziklag overcomes us. True? Think about it. We don't often really need as much information as we need endurance at that point. We don't really need to know something as much as we need to just stay on our feet. True? Or to stand up. That's what we need in the middle of a crisis. Stand up. Get up. Wake up. Go on. Take another step. That's what we need. And that's what God promises. He promises to give us that grace that will help in our time of need. He may help us figure it out later, but right then, it's kind of like he wants to know, I know they don't get this, and I love them dearly. I sent my, my son to die for them. They don't get this. I know they're hurting. I understand what that is. Christ went through it. But do they just trust me enough now? Will they just call out to me, and I will give them the grace to stand up, to stay on their feet? That's what we need right then and there. And that's what this is. Use your access with your high priest, Jesus. It's part of strengthening yourself in the Lord your God to just stay on your feet. And Did you notice that if you are in the point of crying out and you have wept so much that you can't even function physically you're just gone that this is different this is after that it's at the end of that it's after you're spent you finally how do we say it job had hit bottom that he finally looked up he wasn't arguing anymore he finally listened and that's a good picture for us to remember So strengthening must begin with your personal God, whom you have met and grown to know. You must know him, not just know about him. And if you know about him, but you know that you have never bowed before him, you have never given him your life, you need to do it. You need to believe in him and admit, I am condemned, even if I know a lot about you, God. If I do not believe in Jesus Christ in that way. This is genuine faith. It's giving God yourself. He bought you with a price, the price of Christ's blood. That's what this is about. He forgives your sin completely. Because Christ paid for it. Have you met him? And 
then you remember, you call to mind, you reaffirm the characteristics of your God and what he has done in the past and what he promises for now and in the future. And you don't embellish this. You take it for what scripture says. Not demanding. And if this helps you remember it, it's always helped me. In the garden, Jesus prayed, If it be your will, Father, take this cup from me. What was he concerned about? Glorifying the Father and obeying him above all else, this personal, what he wanted. If there was another way for us to be saved, Jesus is saying, don't let me go through this. Why? Because God was going to be condemning him for our sin. He knew this. But he prayed, if it be your will, can you pray that when things look absolutely impossible? But this last one is really special, is it not? Use your access with your high priest. He has paved the way. He has gone before. He has paid the price. Let us draw near with, with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. And this is such a huge part of strengthening yourself in the Lord your God so that you may just stay on your feet in a crisis. Learning from David and his experiences in the land of the Philistines, what did it take for David to quit trusting in his own cleverness and designs and plans and schemes? Be honest. Answer that question. And you think you know God better than David? Looking back at your own life, which again, you don't have to be a geezer to do this, but you have more of it to look at, so there's just more humbling things, more times where you finally go, yeah, yeah. I'm there, God. I'm on my knees. You know what's best. You've proved it over and over. Don't take your whole life to get to that point. Have you learned this lesson yet? Have you learned this lesson yet? To quit trusting your own cleverness and designs and plans and schemes and live for God's glory and not your own. And that, the other side of that coin is, are you still depending mostly on your plans and schemes and then hoping to get God's blessing on it all? I've served you. I had two quiet times in one day. I want this. I've served you. Why did this happen to the person I love more than anyone in the face of the earth? I've done this. Do you get that? This is a hard lesson. And every child of God that he obviously cares for and loves because he sent his son to die for us, he wants to learn how he is faithful. He is. 
Does God promise his children that there will never be any zigzags in our own lives? I don't think I need to answer that, do I? Do you realize that our ultimate hope does not lie in this world? but in the eternal life to come? Your ultimate hope? Your life now is filled with all this stuff in order to draw your attention to the Creator who put you here and to be able to proclaim His truth to people who haven't heard it, to get you ready for eternity with Him that's not where most of our hopes are yet. Let's pray. Oh God. These Old Testament books have rocked our world and we thank you for it. We thank you that a servant of yours, a man you say was after your own heart, who had a special place in redemptive history as a king upon whose throne Christ would ultimately fulfill as your sent Messiah and king of kings, that he struggled with these very same things and he wrote chapters and chapters of psalms reflecting his struggle and always his conclusion and his ability to stand on what he knew was true about who you are and how faithful you are, how good you are, how powerful you are, how your purposes are so far beyond us. And, oh, God, we, we too ask that we could rest in those promises even in the midst of things we do not understand and that literally seem like they're going to rip us to shreds. Oh, Lord, you've promised us that in Christ we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And there are so many of us right now who are in that place or know people who are, and we love them so much, it, it hurts us almost as much as them. And we pray that we could stand on that truth, that we could, we could receive your mercy, and we know when we... When we ask you for your mercy, you provide just what we need and the grace to help to stand up in that time to get us maybe through it. And we pray that we could grow enough in you that in addition to praying, if it's your will that, we, that you get us out of it, that we learn to pray for your glory because we know that you're faithful to even walk through it. God, thank you that we don't have to do this alone, that you indwell your people with your spirit, your powerful spirit that brings to our attention when we are not trusting you and where to go and opens up scripture to us and meets the deepest needs of our heart, but you also supply the body of Christ, other brothers and sisters in Christ who at various points have probably gone through similar things and have learned similar lessons. And we pray that you'd make us attentive to
to be able to pray as we see other people and be willing to offer the encouragement that we know they really need in whatever form they really need it, but to be there for one another because you are always there for us. And God, we, we just thank you for your book, for telling us the truth. And we thank you that you back your truth up. It's yours. It's about you. You are the only one who is completely worthy of our praise and worship and completely faithful in all things. And we just lift this up to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand for a benediction that uh, I hope hits home and that which we have already sung about. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. Amen. You're dismissed.